0: The reading is from Mark 10, verses 32 to 52. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, whilst those who followed were afraid. Again he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the 10 heard about this, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road.
1: Repetition has been called the first principle of all learning. Dale Carnegie, the author of How to Make Friends and Influence People, commended repeating an idea three times such as at the start and middle and end of an address. Maybe Carnegie was taking a leaf on that count from Jesus. This is now the third time in Mark's Gospel that Jesus foretells his death. Verse 33. We are going up to Jerusalem, Jesus said. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. The first time that Jesus made that prediction, there was quite a strong negative reaction. Peter even tried to rebuke him. The second time he tried to make it, the disciples did not understand what he was talking about. This third time, there's no record of any negative reaction, but nor of any positive one either. Maybe there's a glimmer more understanding. For us also, it can take time for important truths to sink in. Christian discipleship is rarely about hearing or acting on something new. Much more common is the practice of hearing once again the simple lessons, applying those more perfectly to our lives. Not least, these basic ingredients of discipleship. Now, James and John clearly have quite a way to go, as we see from verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Only one chapter earlier, Jesus had caught the disciples arguing about who was the greatest among them. The request here then of James and John seems in similarly poor taste. But Jesus' response is not a direct rebuke. He doesn't simply say that it's wrong to want to be at his left hand or his right hand. Instead, he takes the worldly ambition of the disciples and points it in a more positive direction. Like a a powerful missile in flight, Jesus takes the energy from that projectile and programs it a new direction. He comes and gives it a course correction, taking the energy and giving it a more excellent way. Ambition for earthly greatness is self-serving and destructive. But ambition for heavenly greatness can be God-honouring and valuable. Such greatness comes through suffering, through serving, and through single mindedness. And we could call those ingredients of heavenly greatness the passive, suffering, the active, serving, and the qualitative, single mindedness. Firstly, heavenly greatness comes through suffering. Verse 38 You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink, or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? We can, they answered. Jesus' own glorification comes after his crucifixion and death. James and John don't yet fully understand that. They don't understand the nature of the suffering Jesus will have to endure. What this cup of suffering really is. Of course, it's the cup of God's right anger at human sin that Jesus will have to bear. Can you drink that cup? Can you be baptized with that baptism? We can, they say, full of bluster bravado. And though they might be a little muddled on that point, Jesus, knowing that they will one day mature into great apostles, does confirm. You will drink that cup that I drink. You will be baptised with the baptism I'm baptised with. We may imagine he says it a little wistfully, knowing the challenges they will face in the future. Not, of course, exactly the same challenges, exactly the same type of suffering that Jesus himself endured. No human being could endure that, but suffering of a similar quality. Heavenly greatness comes through suffering. We're familiar with the logic of endurance bringing rewards. Often hard work has a certain sort of suffering to it, sacrificing time and hours and peace of mind in the aid of producing results. Everyone admires the sort of dogged determination of that sort of suffering. But the suffering Jesus talks about here is different. It's a suffering without guaranteed, or even likely, worldly rewards. A suffering that's normally not respected in the world, and might even look completely illogical to most people. I was preaching on Jesus' first passion prediction, first prediction of his death, a few weeks ago. And of course this topic came up. I'm sorry if we didn't get terribly far with what exactly gospel suffering looks like in South Cambridgeshire. The broad principle, as we know, is that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And what that will mean for each individual one of us will look a little bit different. But let me underline that all It's not just apostles like James and John who face that hurdle of suffering. All of us whose ambition is set on heaven will face it. Nor is it an age-restricted experience, whether in school or early career, middle age or retirement. All of us are in the same boat. Can you drink the cup of suffering that I drink? Can you be baptised with the baptism I'm baptised with? Can you handle the heat of being known as an active Christian? Can you put up with totting of contemporaries for going out of the way to grow the gospel? Can you suffer the inward sighs of friends and relatives as you persevere in faith among them. Can you endure the scorn of the world in making life choices that might look a little bit crazy? Now that might mean taking hard but right decisions rather than easy and wrong ones. It might mean like looking, caring a little less about what people think about what we do. Whatever it is, can you drink that cup? Heavenly greatness comes through suffering. Heavenly greatness comes through serving. Verse 42. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. If James and John were hoping for a fast track to the heavenly throne room, they'd be sorely disappointed. Fine to want to be great, but greatness for Christians means serving. Becoming, in fact, the slave of all. After conquering new lands, Roman emperors would parade in triumph, leading trains of slaves behind them. The Christian church completely reversed that picture of glory, and instead of leading processions, ministers and bishops would stand right at the back of them, in the position, as it were, of the slaves, slaves of all. And the Pope himself took up the suitably sounding title of Servant of the Servants of God, a right aim. The idea is nicely captured, of course, in the words of Paul, who claims to have become all things to all men in order that he might save some of them. But how can we all be slaves of all? I don't think it means always getting under our neighbour's feet, trying to constantly do their dishes and mow their lawns, though that sometimes might be the right thing. It does, however, mean having others' interests firmly in mind, putting them first, serving them, as it were, as slaves. And we all have physical and spiritual, emotional, financial needs. It's easy just to dwell on our own needs and those of our immediate family. It's much harder to get out of the box and think about others' needs What about X? How can I help Y? Uh, Tom, when he was preaching about three weeks ago on the second passion prediction, helped us a bit with two specific things. Thinking about how to value children more in church, and welcoming outsiders who are not like us, who are in a different uh, demographic or life stage. As we know, there are lots of ways in which we can serve our villages, our church, uh, charities, and Christian initiatives. But is our attitude to those opportunities to become the slave of all? It's much easier to take a kind of, I'll do my bit, attitude. A little here, a little there. Done ticked the box of serving. But Jesus' call is to lifelong, dedicated slavery to all. And maybe you feel like, oh, that's fine for the spiritually ambitious, those who want to be first in the kingdom of heaven. But I don't. I just want to be four million six hundred fifth in the kingdom of heaven. But that's a faithless way of thinking. If Jesus is of any importance, he's of all importance. He did not settle for an easy route to the cross, and nor should we seek for easy outs in our service of him. Thirdly and finally, greatness comes through single-mindedness. Verse 47. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, Bartimaeus began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. Jesus saw through James and John's muddled upness, Bartimaeus, though, is a distinct contrast, a man who is clear on who Jesus is and acts accordingly. He calls out, is shoved aside by the crowd, but is single-minded and persists because he's so sure of his pursuit of Jesus. And eventually, despite difficulty, he is rewarded. Jesus commends him. Your faith has made you well. Some of the greatest stories of Christian witness are of those who pursued a particular type of service single-mindedly. We might think of Amy Carmichael, who single-mindedly served the Indian poor in Donovan for 54 years without a break. Or of Mr Eternity. In Sydney, who single-mindedly chalked up his evangelistic message on pavements decade after decade. Or of Charles Simeon here in Cambridge, who single-mindedly encouraged evangelical students into ordained ministry and accumulated church appointments for them to fill. Or Gloria Quashie, who single-mindedly has adopted over 300 orphaned children. Now these sorts of stories don't come because those people are in some sort of heroic category of their own. Instead, it's because they single-mindedly pursued a course of Christian service, becoming slave of all in the best way available to them and keeping assets Single-mindedness requires of us that we don't give up, that we don't cave in when crowds jeer and gossip. Bartimaeus probably did think hard about giving up when that was going on around him, but the prospect of standing before Jesus kept him going, doggedly. Some of us might feel we've been doing the same things, same sorts of service for years and years and getting nowhere. If it is serving Jesus, if it is serving others though, don't waver. Keep assets. Maybe like Bartimaeus, instead of stopping, we should shout all the more. Not backpedal, but push even harder. Pray more, Love more, serve more. And the commendation for our faith will come. Suffering, serving, and single-mindedness for heavenly greatness. It's worth us remembering, of course, that our efforts don't buy Jesus' favour. He already bought that himself for us at the cross. And verse 45 is a good reminder of that. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." It's a good candidate there for verse memorization. Maybe see who over the lunch table can remember that first. Son of man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, our efforts are a right response to that gift. Jesus was ambitious for us, ambitious to rescue us so much that he went to his death. And our response must be ambition also, to be summoned close to him as Bartimaeus was, and commended having suffered and served with single-minded faith. Let's close in a brief word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your ransom paid for us Thank you that you are such a great king. Give us, we pray, clear sight of that as Bartimaeus had. And so may we desire to do all that we can for you.
0: Amen.